I will give a disclaimer as uh, we jump into chapter two here. The beginning of this message or teaching or sermon or whatever you want to give it will be kind of like normal. But when we get to the halfway point, um, I really think chapter two and chapter three are one chapter. Um, and remember, chapters were put in by man. Um, you know, so, and the whole thing was written, written together. Uh, I pointed out to say this because we're going to have a long intro, uh, from chapter two at the end, at the middle of the day that leads us into chapter three of next week. So, uh, it kind of would be a cliffhanger. Uh, be, be a little different than normal, but, but let's get started with this. And one thing I, I first thought this week when I read this thing, well, two things. One I'll get to in a minute. And I'm so grateful Duke's here because it's for me and him. But uh, but one is this. David had to learn things in adversity that he never would have learned in prosperity. I don't know if that connects. I think that would connect with a lot of us. I expected more than one amen other than Carla. But hey, maybe just me and Carla have dealt with a lot of adversity rather than prosperity. Um, but David, you know, clearly look at look at his life. Look at his call from the time he was a teenager up until now that he's approximately 30 years old. Uh, on his call to be a king and all the adversity and all the things that he's had to go through up until this point, I don't believe he ever would have been the man that he is, the man that he was, if it hadn't been for that. That's training. I mean, he's in intense training going on. Uh, whereas if he had been in prosperity the whole time, I think he may have turned out to be a little bit more like Saul than like David. Um, Thomas Clark, uh, a Scottish essayist or, or historian, he puts it this way. Uh, for one man who can stand prosperity, there will be a hundred that can stand adversity. For one man that can stand prosperity, there'll be a hundred that can stand adversity. What's he saying? He's saying it's easier sometimes to take adversity than to take prosperity. Because prosperity will make us think we're okay and it'll get us kind of in a trap. And there's been a lot of men and a lot of women that have fallen going through prosperity rather than struggling it out and toughening it up and, and gaining some, some grit through adversity. Um, and, and that's that's really the big difference between uh, a lot of people in Scripture that, that we get to write about. Um, that first song, man, was, was great. You know, we, we talked about a, a guy who picked up a rock and we talked about a guy who had stage fright. But yeah, God used all of them despite their their problems. I um, mean, I think that's a lot of us today. So so time has changed. Saul is dead. His time is ended. And, and you can put that the time for King David is beginning. Now, we know from what Mitch just, Mitch just read he, he's only king over a very tiny area when he was supposed to be king over a very large area. So that's why I put it's just beginning for David. I think it'd be chapter five before he finally gets this whole thing. But but we're not there yet. So chapter two, verse one is where we got to start and where our first lesson comes. And our first lesson is this. David seeks guidance from God. It don't get no easier, no more basic. Than that, except for if you could put yourself in David's shoes, I wonder if you'd respond the same way David responds. Look at verse one. Sometime later, we talked about it last week. You got to have that grieving time, however long it may be. Sometime later, though, David inquired of Yahweh. Should I go to one of the towns? Yes. Yes, you should go. But David wants to be more specific. Well, hold on. If you want me to go exactly where do you want me to go? Now, we can go off the last 15 to 20 years of David's life, however many of them were hiding in caves and running wild. And perhaps some of those times he had asked God, should I go? And maybe God said yes, but he forgot to ask, where should I go? And maybe that's why he spent more time in a cave than maybe he should have. Don't just ask God, should I? Make sure you get real specific with God in your request. God, where exactly do you want me to go? What exactly do you want me to do? 
Because if you don't get the where you're supposed to be going, you may be going to the wrong place. Okay? It's no different. We joked about it at the end of last week with, with God, do you want me to go on the mission field? Yes. But if you don't ask the where and you don't learn the exact thing for you, because every single one of us are different. God's given each of us different passions, different abilities to connect to different people, different areas, whatever it is. So we got to ask God, God, what, where? Where do you want me to go? So God answers him. I want you to go to Hebron. And look at what look at what happens right here. And here's why I think David is so awesome in this section personally for me. David was anointed to be king as a teenager, right? The only obstacle David's really had the entire time for being from being a king where God anointed and commanded that he will be is Saul. Saul is dead. Saul is gone. He's out. He's no longer there. If one of us in this room may have been David at this moment. We could have saw opportunity, selfish opportunity, and we could have pursued the throne that we know was ours. While the, while the nation was in turmoil, we could have began to kill off and eliminate all the competition of David's family that was remaining. We could have went in with our men and took over and possibly won the hearts of, of others that were just awestruck because they needed that hero to come in at that moment uh, for them. But David doesn't do any of that. It says that after some time, David sought Yahweh for an answer. David said, you know what? I've done enough of this stuff on my own and I know where I should be going. But if I go that way on my own, there's going to be a lot of error that's probably going to occur. See, I think some of us, we even know where we should be going and what we should be doing. But we forget to bring God along for the guidance along that route. And because of it, sometimes when we go where we should be going, Maybe not when and how we should be going, but but we go where we should be going and we wonder, why isn't this as good as it's supposed to be? Why isn't it working out the way it's supposed to work out? And I think it's because a lot of times we forgot to bring God with us. We know where we're supposed to be going, but we forgot who's supposed to be leading the way. We forgot who we're supposed to be bringing. David saw nothing but God's plan at this very moment. Because he knew that if he built this thing on his own, the same thing he's been doing throughout his entire uh, calling. And anointing to be king, he had many opportunities to eliminate Saul, yet chose not to because he wanted it God's way. So he sought out God's plan and he knew that if he had tried to get the kingdom and done it by human methods, he'd have had human problems. But instead he said, God, I want you to guide. Yahweh, I want you to lead this way because he understood what, what he later would write in Psalm chapter 127, verse one. Unless Yahweh builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over a city, the watchman stays alert and vain. We've been building too many things on our own without the guidance and, 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 the, and the support of God. And things begin to crumble because of that right there. You know, there, There's something else in scripture that says, well, well, if man builds it, surely it'll fail. But, but if God builds it, it can never fail. And we need to remember that sometimes. And we ought to not be so amazed sometimes when man-made businesses and man-made structures and man-made organizations and dare I say man-made churches begin to crumble and have problems, whatnot, all along the way. It shouldn't surprise us because Scripture told us over and over, man, if it's built on man and man's wisdom, surely I won't have to worry about it because it will fail. But if it's built on God, nothing to be able to stop it. David had heard these words back way back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Well, first 14 is, is to Saul. And he said, now your kingdom is going to not continue any longer, Saul. Yahweh has sought him a man after his own heart. Could you imagine being Saul and hearing this from God's spokesman? 
What, what do you mean my kingdom's not gonna, not gonna go any longer? What do you, I've got kids that, that'll take over when, when I am old and, and I am dead. No. God's word concerning your successor, which we know is David, is identified as a man after God's own heart. David did not want his kingdom built upon deceit and, and, and upon lies. And that's why every step of the way, at least for David, even though we know he's got his faults and he stumbles along the way, but he desired for God to establish this thing. And in chapter 7, verse 16, at that promise that he got from God, it says this, And thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever and ever, and your throne shall be established forever. We know where that's leading to. We know where that's going. And David realizes that Saul is gone, and it would have been so easy, yet he still seeks God. Sometimes, church, we need to remember not to do it the easy way, especially in the days, day and time. David refused to take a step, even though he had so many choices and so many chances that he could have done his way, but he refused to take a step without letting God lead. Because he knew, Matthew 6, that I've got to seek the kingdom of God first. And if I do, then all these things will be added to me. And he listened to God. And God said, you go and you go to Hebron. And there's what brings us to verse two. See, the beginning is so small and so simple. David inquired to Yahweh, what should I do? You should go. Where should I go? You should go to Hebron. So verse two, because see, we're quick to ask God. But some of us fail on the follow through. Am I right? Huh? Wives, let me, let me get you because I didn't get enough on that connection right there. There's a lot of husbands that ask what you want done, but there's few that actually do it. Oh, we got more amens that time. Good. Huh? Am, am I right? Because we're quick to want to do something. And I think that's the, the human heart. We want to be good. We, we really want to establish. We want to do things the right way. Yet when we get the call on what to do and how to do it, we fall short on the follow through. And that's why verse two, why it's so simple and so important. David submits to God's plan. Just look at what it says. So David went. How simple. You could have stopped the verse at just that right there. So David went. Now he's a leader of a family. So he takes his, his woman with him and, and his family with him and, and all that stuff into the next couple of verses. But the follow through, the follow through, David submitted to God's plan. David, God heard for, for or David heard from God and, and he went. James chapter four, verse seven. He writes to his followers in early church and he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I don't think it's any accident whatsoever that these two sentences go together in the book of James. Because, like I said, I think a lot of people, they want a life established with God, at least at least followers, believers. They, they want a, they want an overcoming life and, and they want that. But somehow, some way, the devil's able to twist and manipulate. And I want to look at those two sentences together real quick and just let you know they're not you're not able sometime. We're not able sometime to resist the devil. And the reason is because we haven't submitted everything to God. God demands total obedience. And if we don't submit everything over to him and we leave just a little gateway for Satan to come on in and tempt and twist and manipulate and deceit and lie to us. Then the outcome is what happens. We, we do this sometimes. Sometimes we, we know what God wants for us, so we presume that we don't have to pray for it then. Well, I know what God wants, so there's no need to pray. Guys, we do too many things sometimes that are prayerlessly. Maybe we could do it this way. Maybe we pray a lot over major important decisions, but yet we forget about the little steps. And, and I need to remind us and ask ourselves this. Why do we pray about the major things? Because they're important to us, right? Don't you think the little things is what gets you to the major things? 
So, so maybe we should say it this way. The same thing that we pray over the, the major things is the same thing we should pray over the little things because we as followers have obeyed scripture that says develop a habit of praying. Develop a habit of taking everything to God. Understand that God's got a plan. He had a plan for David. He's got a plan. He's got, he's got a plan for us. And sometimes maybe we miss that part of it. We forget that God has mapped out our life and we just choose to take some detours on it along the way, if we're honest. Right? But think about the things that we know God's mapped out for you. At least I believe he has. I believe God has mapped out who you should date. I don't think there's any mistake on that. And I think some of us have dated wrong people. And we can admit if I had just listened to God. Maybe God's mapped. Maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe God mapped out whether you should date. Maybe you're dating and you're not supposed to be dating. Right? Or maybe you're dating too many. I don't know. Right? Maybe, maybe God's mapped out who you should marry or if you should even marry then if we look at it that way. Maybe, maybe he's mapped out exactly what job and vocation you should be in. Maybe he's mapped out exactly where you should live. Maybe he's got a lot of plans going for you and you hadn't thought to ask him what his plan is for your life. And because you hadn't thought to ask him, you're just going about life with man-made method, man-made methods, man-made ways into man-made destruction. Rather than seeking out like, like David does, God, I, I, Yahweh, I want your, I want your plan. Now, now David, and this is why it's so huge. And I said it, David knew he was going to be king. If you had interviewed David at any point and asked, Hey, David, what, what's your plan for the future? I'm the anointed king. I mean, that's it, right? But yet he seeks God's confirmation at every single point. Now, now look, look at Hebron real quick and, and just real briefly, because I think sometimes we, we make a mistake here when we're following God. Hebron is tiny. I mean, this, this, this is not this is not a big place. This is a small place. I mean, just just listening by what Mitch read and, and looking over those words, you see what it says. David got this and the other guy. Got this. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm David, and I'm just going to be honest, if I'm David, I'm going to have some question time. Hey, God, I don't know if you remember, I'm supposed to be king over all Israel. All that's supposed to be mine, not just this tiny little thing. And maybe David did. I don't know. But what I do know is what Jesus says in the New Testament, which I think kind of ties in right here that we need to remember sometime is the kingdom of God. Jesus said is like a mustard seed. It grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. Church, thinking about it and consider that a mustard seed starts out so tiny, man, so tiny. Matter of fact, they're so tiny. If you ever buy any and use for an illustration during a sermon or a Wednesday night thing, and you spill that bag in your book bag, you will have mustard seeds in your book bag for the rest of your life. Because those tiny little things stay. I'm not speaking from experience. I'm just saying maybe. Maybe that's what could have happened, right? I'm telling you, those, I mean, they, they just, they stay forever. But, but Google pictures of how big they grow. And let's be honest. Everything Jesus did started out really small, right? But how much did it grow? How much did it grow? How many millions of believers do we have in the world today? But it had to start with a small group, right? Just take China for existence. This one, this one blew me. So, so China is it's pretty much illegal to have church in almost all the areas of China. So they have the house church, the underground church, and, and all that stuff going on. Okay, But a few people thought it was worthy enough to go. A few of them thought it was worthy enough to get Bibles in there. And because of those few people, now there are millions of Chinese believers. But it had to start so small. 
And, and then I got to look at David right here. And David doesn't ever complain. He doesn't say, hey, God, you're supposed to give me the whole kingdom. Hey, God, you, you were supposed to do it this way. And hey, God, I thought you were I thought you were going to do this. What's he do? He's perfectly satisfied with God's plan. And I wonder sometimes if, if God hadn't elevated our plan to the next the next scheme or the next level because we hadn't been satisfied in the in the previous level that he's done. Look, look at David here. There's no complaining. There's no groaning. There's no moaning. There's no it wasn't fair. There's none of that. But how quick are we sometime when God does something awesome in our life to not be satisfied with it because it wasn't awesome enough? Right. How, how quick are we sometime to despise the small things that God does? And neglect. I think when we're here in praise time sometimes, and I believe this because it, it happens to me, so I know it's got to be happening to somebody else. I think sometimes when people are praising God for certain things, we're being reminded. Oh, I remember that one little thing God did. I remember when I saw that. And man, I didn't even think to praise God at that moment for, for that kind of thing. Why? Because we neglect and we despise the small things. We ought to be like the little boy with the Happy Meal who runs up to Jesus and says, I ain't got nothing but a Happy Meal, Lord, but I think you can feed a couple thousand people with it. What if we wouldn't despise the small things? What if we what if we would stop undercutting ourselves of falling short because we have stage fright or because all we have is a rock in a hand or because we're a teenager fighting it? What if what if we would be satisfied with what God's doing and trust God in that moment and, and forget the understanding? I don't have to understand why. That's why it's called faith. Right. If I could see the next step, it wouldn't be faith because I can't see. That means I got to trust God with what's going on. Job said this, Job chapter 13, verse 15. He puts it a little more bluntly than I probably would have put it. But he says, if God's going to kill me, if he's going to slay me, I'm still going to trust him. I'm still going to trust him. I will maintain mine own ways before him. Now, now I want to point out something because the Hebrew word right here makes this thing a little bit even better. I think Job is really telling God this. God, if you're slaying me, if you are completely against me, now, he doesn't say God is. He says, if. If you're against me, if that's the way it's looking, because everybody's telling me that, right? I'm still going to trust you. That, that's what R says. The Hebrew word for trust, though, also means to wait. To wait. So, so, so now maybe you could say it this way. Job is saying, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't see it. It doesn't make any sense to me. But it seems that if God is, is completely against me, like everybody's saying, I'm still going to wait on God to see what God's going to do next. How many of us are willing to tell God that? God, I'm willing to trust and wait on you for what, what's going to take place next. God, I, I remember what, what you told me. And I remember that you were faithful. And I don't know what David was thinking when we got to verse 11. Now, see, we, we kind of fast forward in chapters 2 and 3 because we know it by verse 11 that this, this, this reign of kingdom that David has is only seven and a half years. But at seven and a half years of being king over a little, when you were supposed to be king over everything. And I'm going to get to why I think it, it went that way also. But, but I want us to remember and just look at this point and remember, God's not always going to reveal his total plan to you. Because we can't handle it, is what I think. I don't, I don't think he, I don't think he can actually trust us with it. I think it's going to be one step at a time along this. And, and I think a lot of times we're fighting against what God's doing in our life. And that's why we hadn't got where we're supposed to be getting. The very method that God is trying to bless us with is the same method that we're fighting against God with. He's sitting there thinking, I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to get you. But yeah, we're just, we're just fighting along the way. And we know this. What, what does Jesus tell his followers in Luke chapter 12? I, I desire for you guys that, uh, um, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you the kingdom, to commit 
Or, or, or as they, another translation would say, to establish you in the kingdom. His kingdom. That's God's plan for us, right? So, so we get all this going on and we, we commend David for his awesomeness right here. And then we get to verse 4. In verse 4, David's got to play a little bit of politics. Which, which we knew kind of would have to come if he was going to get into that. Because here's what he does. Verses 4 through 7. And if you've been with us through this series, you already know. But if, if not, let me remind us. You, you get these men at Gabash Gilead. And, and these guys, these guys are, are, are legit, man. They, they were our only hope in one chapter, if you remember right. So, so these guys are the men that went to claim back the bodies of Saul, his son Jonathan, that, that were hanging, that were, that were decapitated, that were demoralized, that were, that were just hanging on the city gates. Yet they snuck by and they thought enough of, remember they're paying back Saul for, for what Saul had done for them previously. And they thought enough to go back and claim those bodies, bring those bodies back, handle them the right way. And here's what David says. So David's thanking them for the bravery, thanking them for the courage. In verse sixes and seven, here's what David looks at and David says to him. Now may the Lord show kindness and faithfulness to you. And I will also show the same goodness to you because you've done this deed. Therefore, be strong and valiant. For though Saul, your Lord is dead, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, here's why I say David's kind of starting to play a little bit of politics right here. And he should be. He's got to. If you're going to unite a people group together, you're going to need the support of everybody. Right. So David reaches these these first men who he knows are very powerful. They're, they're courageous. They're guys who are going to go to bat, you know, for whoever they follow beyond the shout of any worry of, of outcome or anything else. And he invites them. He's saying, guys, God, God really commends what you did. I'm commending what you did. And then he kind of throws in that last sentence. You know, your leader is, is dead and Judah's appointed me to be next leader. Now, now, we don't know exactly which side these men get on. It, it doesn't tell us. We know at the end where they're at, right? But I wonder if this little, this little section right here is just to remind us, perhaps, perhaps since for us today, God's asking us, what kingdom are we going to support? Because this whole thing is about to be much more divided than it ever should have been divided, than it was ever intended to be divided. Maybe God's saying, which kingdom do you belong to? Which kingdom are you going to give allegiance to? Because when we get to verses 8 through 11, uh, 8 through 11, we've got something that should have never happened taking place. We've got a guy with, with selfish ambition promoting his own man to be king, which, by the way, we hadn't even heard of this guy as, as Saul's son. Why might you think that is? Well, no, I think he saw a son. I think he saw a son from a, uh, a side chick. Y'all can say it. Go ahead. We in, we in Givance Church. In Givance Church, you can say side chick, right? <laughs> I don't, I don't think this was one of his sons from, from, from his anointed and appointed, uh, queen. I think this come from possibly a concubine or, or, or side chick. Y'all, y'all never forget that. Huh? Don't tell Crystal I said side chick in here. I get in trouble, right? But, but possibly, I don't know that's exactly what happened, but I know that his cousin is promoting this guy for selfish reasons, which we'll feed out and we'll see very clearly in chapter three that this is a very selfish uh, kind of guy right here. But what I want to point out through eight through 11 is this. God's not mentioned any more of the rest of this whole chapter because God is not appointing anybody else king. Abner is. Abner, a man thinking he can appoint a position that he's not even able to appoint, by the way. I'd like to point that out. You ever notice that? You ever notice that sometimes people who don't even have the authority to give something away are, are quick to give it away? Well, that's not mine, but I'll give it to you anyway. You don't have that authority, right? So, so here's where I want us to spend the rest of the time today 
primarily looking at. These two main characters we get for the next two chapters, or the rest of chapter two and, and chapter three. And here, here's what you could call it. And here's where I'm glad my boy sitting over there in the middle right there. Because here's what this is to me, and this will help you remember. This is two bald men fighting over a comb. I'm dead serious. This is me and Duke fighting over a comb. Why do I say that? Because me and Duke don't need no comb. We do that right there, and our hair is good to go. We look good. We are sharp because bald men are attractive, and we're ready to roll. Y'all should have had more. There's a lot of bald heads in here. That should have been a lot of amen in I'm going to say that one more time. Because bald men are attractive. I was I was honestly hoping by giving a second chance that the women would have amen a little bit and helped the brother out, but but it didn't happen, right? Hey, wh- why do I call it this? Why do I call it this? Because Abner and Joab, neither one of them, have any rights right now. If we're all on, they don't. Neither one of them can appoint a king. Neither one of them have the rights to do anything. They're two men fighting over something they've got no need for. They've got no authority for. But yet they're willing to go and they're willing to destroy for years and cause civil war for a whole nation over this cone. Now, I want to go back and look at these two characters because some of us in here this morning will relate with these two characters and be one of them. I thought one was much better than the other in all honesty is where that started. But then God gave me something different at the end. So here's where I first up to Abner. Don't be that excited about him. He's the bad guy. I say Abner's a bad guy. Here's why. David, uh, Abner doesn't even appear in, in Scripture until 1 Samuel chapter 17. He appears when David's getting ready to fight Goliath. So set that scene, go back, however many months that would be for us, as slow as we get through Samuel, right? It, and you expect when Goliath stands up, he's calling out for the greatest warrior. You would expect the tallest, sharpest guy to get up, right? That's Saul. But yeah, what's Saul doing? Sitting on the sidelines, scared, scared. Scripture says it, right? So then if he's not going to, you would think him being a good politician also, he would be able to say, well, I am king. And if I fall, that would be really bad. So my next man up should be the guy to do this, right? Well, scripture tells us the commander of Saul's army is Abner. What's Abner doing? He's scared too. Sitting there on the sideline like a little coward. Listen to me. First Samuel 17. Now, when Saul saw David come against the Philistine, he said to Abner, who was right beside him. Just showing you guys, I'm not making this up, right? He's sitting right there with his commander, with, with the guy who's supposed to be, a, who's going to be his bodyguard, his, his main security uh, here at the end of first Samuel, right? And Abner, or Abner said to him, uh, by your life, O king, I don't even know who that is. I, I want, I, I got, I know we way past this chapter, but I got to go back and just wonder for two guys with such authority sitting on the sideline, what they were going through in their head when they had to admit they didn't even know the family lineage of the dude getting ready to go make history. You know what I'm saying? Like that. I, I think we should know who that is, but I don't even know who that is. Check your book. You know, it should be one of us, but it's not. The 56, it says, and the king said, you inquire and check out who this youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took and brought him before Saul with Philistine's head in his hand still. Y'all know I couldn't leave that verse out. Right? So Abner goes and gets David. David still got David's head. I mean, Goliath's head in his hand walking. He ain't letting go of that thing, right? Right? He's going to drop it off when he gets where he's supposed to be going, but he ain't going to drop it off early. That's Abner's first impression of David. He watched this guy drop Goliath. He watched this guy cut his head off. 
and he walked with this guy, toting the head of Goliath up to the king. Now, I don't want grinning the whole time. That's right. Now, I don't I don't mean to sound overly harsh against old cousin Abner here. OK, because by the way, Abner is Saul's cousin. All right. The commander of this army and all this stuff right here. But it seems to me by what I'm reading in the scene I'm looking at that he was scared out of his wits at this battle. Because scripture tells us this. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, don't say everybody but Abner. It doesn't say everybody but Saul. It says they were all dismayed and greatly afraid until David steps on the scene with bringing lunch for his brothers. Later on in verse 24, same chapter, it says, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Reminding us again on how afraid they were. So afraid that they've now fleed to the sideline. This is a guy who's supposed to be in charge. Here's why who's in charge matters, because cowardness in the ranks suggests cowardness in upper levels. You understand that? I pray right now that we are a faith filled church because there are leaders in this church who are faith filled. And I pray that that flows out into others and how they operate in their lives. And if not, then we at the upper ranks have failed. Because cowardness in the ranks suggests that there's cowardness in the upper level. Therefore, faithfulness in the ranks should suggest that there's faithfulness in the upper level. Which is why I look at David and his small band of soldiers and what they were able to do. Faithfulness, courageous, promoted that. David and Abner, they had to know each other. Here's why. And I, want to, I want to make sure we understand how well they knew each other. Abner's the commander of Israel's army, we said. David's a war hero. A war hero now. He's appointed commander over a thousand men in 1 Samuel 18. Now, you would think if you're the leader of the army, the guy who's in charge of a thousand soldiers, you probably know him really well. Perhaps you knew him so well, you may have been afraid of his elevation in the ranks as well. And I get to why I want to point that out. So he gets many more military victories, we know. David wins the respect. At the end of chapter 18, it says he won the respect of other commanders. So, so he, he's on a roll, right? Furthermore, Abner, just like David in chapter uh, 20, verse 25, it says that he was a regular guest at Saul's table. So I would suggest we know that he was playing music for Saul and got to eat at the table also, David. So perhaps maybe David, Saul, and Abner were all at the table multiple times together. They've spent some time together. While Abner may not have knew who David was at first, I think Abner knew real well who David was through his promotions, and he's got his attention this entire military training career, right? So Saul turns against David. We know the side of the story. Abner supports his cousin. We know that because it says Saul employs his army of select men. Well, you think if you're selecting your army, you're probably going to have the leader of that army pursuing David and going on, and he does. And I think Abner was more involved in David's life than he would like to admit, or maybe even David knew for sure. And, and here's why right here as we get this thing going. Abner pursuing David. Remember, at, at one point they were pursuing David and all of them fell asleep. That's uh, chapter 26. As they all fell asleep, saw, I mean, David asks one of his men, hey, anybody want to go down to the enemy camp? There's 3,000 soldiers, but I'm going to go by myself if none of you guys go with me. And one guy said, I'll go with you. And they sneak into the camp. They steal David's spear. They steal his water jug. And then they get right outside the camp across the water. And they look back and they yell and wake everybody up. And you remember what David does? What's he yelling about? Hey, Abner, ain't you the guy that's supposed to be in charge of protecting your king? I got his spear and I got his water jug. I should have killed both of you, but I didn't. 
Right. So you got to ask yourself, if this is the case, why in the world? Because we know that's David's only motive because he had a friend with him, by the way, which we'll get to in a minute because it's Joab's brother. We had a friend with him that was definitely willing to kill Saul and willing to kill Abner. But David told him, uh-uh, we ain't killing nobody. We're just going to take the spear. We're going to take the water jug. We're going to cross back over. So it's almost like David's whole plan is to do this to prove how bad Abner really is. Might it be this right here to publicly humiliate Abner? Why? Why does David, I had to ask, why does David, or what does David, I'm sorry, what does David have against Abner in particular? Well, if you, if you go in that same chapter, verses 9 to verse 11, David asks Saul, he's pursuing the killing, don't forget that still, and he pursues him. Has God instructed you to pursue me? Or, or has someone, he never names a name, oh, but I'm with you, or has someone been putting a little, a little bit in your ear that you should be pursuing me, and it wasn't God putting the little bit in your ear, it was somebody else. I think David knew that Abner's little weenie, afraid, scared out of his wits because of how fast David was rising up in the ranks, how much of an impression he'd already made on Abner, and Abner was afraid of David. So Abner was the guy whispering in Saul's ear, we got to get rid of him before he gets rid of us. Purely, mostly speculation, backed up by some uh, evidence, okay? But I think that's, I think that's what's happening. Th- then he says this, think again, because and, and this kind of proves it even more, right? Because after this goes on, I had to ask myself this. If that guy's so high up in the ranks, how is he still alive? We remember what happened at the end of Samuel, right? First Samuel? Everybody did. So I had to ask myself, and here's how I wrote it. Abner's not mentioned it. I looked back, went back and looked. And First Samuel 26 all the way until today in chapter 2. Where would that brother been for five chapters? Where's the leader of their army who's supposed to be one bad dude? For five chapters of major battle going on. I have no idea. I don't even have an answer to that question. Vacation, maybe. So I wrote it in front of us. Where, where's Abner when the Israelites are fighting the Philistines? Where's Abner when the Israelites suffer massive defeat? Where's Abner in verse 31, verse 7, when the remaining people alive flee for their lives? Where's Abner when Saul's right-hand man, who's supposed to be Saul's right-hand man, is slain and dead? Where's Abner when Saul is laying on his own sword dead? Where's Abner when his sons are killed and dead? And then I wrote this for my personal note. Maybe Abner's model is when the tough, when time get tough, you get moving away. You go on vacation, right? Because when the dust all settles and all this big major battle stuff is over, Abner's still there. Matter of fact, he's still there so much that he's went and sought out this illegitimate son that's still able to maybe be used for political gain. So this entire time that his own men are dying, he's out there searching out personal political gain. He had to go out and search out this boy. He had to bring this boy on up. He had to make sure everybody knew who this boy was. And he had to, why he has no authority to do so, but he had to be the one to appoint him as king. Now, I need you to understand this when we say people have no authority. So we get real busy at the shop sometime and, and I got a couple, couple good customers that hang out back with us and some annoying customers that do so too, but, but some good customers that hang out with us while we're putting stuff on and, and they hang out and they dress about like we dress on a cold morning. You know, you got a hoodie and some jeans on. So I'll play along like, Hey, I, that dude over there is the boss, not me. And, and, uh, and you need to ask him all the questions and they'll ask a question and, and somebody will throw an answer out. And it's just funny how quick they'll believe that. 
And I'm sitting there thinking in my head, that guy ain't got the authority to give you nothing in here, but yet you're believing what he's saying. It's no different than Abner here. Abner had no authority to make this guy king, yet he does so, and people follow it. And people follow it. Understand this, right? Now, now pause right there for a minute, because there's another main character. Now you got Joab. Joab comes on the scene. He's going to be with us for a really long time. But the first time he comes on the scene is chapter 26, verse 6, when Abner's missing. Huh. Imagine that. Right? Now, now the first time he comes on scene, I got to point this out. This is actually not even about Joab. This is about Joab's older brother, Abishai. Okay. Nope. Remember, remember what Abishai was? David sleeping in the camp. David says, I need a volunteer who's basically going to suicide. They think it's a suicide mission with me down into the valley of 3,000 soldiers. We're going to go down there, and steal his sword, steal his water jug, and come on back. Now, I'm only pointing out that this is his brother because of this right here. First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 16. Abishai is the oldest of these three brothers. There's three of them we know from what Mitch just read. He's the oldest. So you would think he, normally the, the eldest son is, is the boss, right? Yet every time they're mentioned and referred to in Scripture, like 26, verse 6 of 1 Samuel, he's referred to as Joab's brother. I just point that out to suggest, since we're talking about men's character, Joab is probably the better known of all the brothers. He's probably the top dog. He's probably the guy who's the leader of their family or whatever title you want to want, you want to give him. All right. So, so let's get back and check out Joab a little bit further. Saul's feelings toward David. He, he's on the fleas on the run. Scripture tells us chapter 22 that all those that were known to support David had to flee with David. We remember the 400 men that first joined him in the cave. Probably, most likely, Abishai, Joab, and Asahel, uh, their family, they probably went there. They're supporting David. They probably need to get out of, out of Dodge. They don't want, you know, Saul's, uh, reign to, to reign, reign terror on them as well. So, so they go through this. He works for David. He stays working through David. He stays in one of David's right hand men, him and both his brothers. Uh, they join this army. They go through this stuff later on in the future, far future, because we're talking first Chronicles chapter 11. Uh, David becomes king over all Israel. Uh, Judah, who, who had been ruled as far as the army by Joab. He now becomes the commander over Israel's whole army. He does that by taking the uh, challenge to go against Jabus and attack it. Again, that's, that's Chronicles. That's later future. I'm just pointing out character. This guy becomes Abner's role. He takes over. He becomes the boss. He's great. He's courageous. He's awesome. And as these chapters go on, we're going to see an awesome military type guy. Something very similar to David's uh, mindset. So much, in fact, I want to commend this as well. Joab has great discernment at the same time. Because it's Joab, you remember years later, David's going to have a beef with one of his children. Uh, it's Joab, though, that says, man, you, you and your son need to get together. Y'all need to talk this out. Y'all need to, you know, that's Absalom. Y'all need, need to discuss this. And they do. And they do. But it's also, when I say discernment, he knew that they needed to talk. This guy is also the guy who has to kill Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 18 for making a, a pull against David and, and his kingship. So I just want to point out Joab's character. Joab's the kind of guy who's willing to fight, who has good discernment. He knows when stuff needs to be done certain ways. And Abner felt like he had things that need to be done certain ways. So we've got two guys. Two guys. When the title of the sermon says, are we going to let God establish the kingdom? Or are we going to let men? I had the mindset. You know, y'all ever watch any of the old Westerns where the good guys always wore white hats and the bad guys always had a black hat? You knew if a guy was bad or if a guy was good by whatever cowboy hat he was wearing. Right? Now, some of y'all, y'all don't watch good westerns and y'all should pray about it. Uh, it was only good clean TV. Right? But, but you always knew that way. 
by what color hat they were. And I would have thought for sure that Joab was wearing a white cowboy hat and Abner had his black cowboy hat. But if you go back and you study a lot of this stuff, whether we like what Joab does or not, they're both wearing black cowboy hats. They're both pursuing selfish gains. They're both not following exactly the way of the Lord. They, and we're going to get to it in chapter three, so don't take long to get to some of their mistakes, okay? But then when I realized that, I realized that there's only one character in all of Scripture that could wear a white cowboy hat. That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. But then I am amazed to go back and look at how God can use all the black cowboy hats to get his plan accomplished. So if you're wearing a black cowboy hat, that's all right. God can still use you to get his plan accomplished, right? Let's review real quick before we get to the end of this thing. Because I'm going I'm to fly through the end of chapter 2, which is we're starting in chapter verse 12. Because it's going to go into chapter 3 next week, all right? So verse 12, here's what you got, 12 through 16. you got a 12 on 12 battle getting ready to take place. These guys don't like each other. They at the pool. They, you, 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 this would be an awesome movie, by the way. These guys are at the pool facing each other across. You know, the water's separating them. And finally one of them says, hey. Pick your best 12. I'm going to pick my best 12 then. And they have a 12 on 12. But I think they believed to be at more of a wrestling match, a form of competition. But I think all 24 of the men are so evil, so so ill-minded, that when they pick out these 12 and they get ready to fight right before they yell, go, you, you, you just now heard it by Mitch, all of them grab swords and spirit and shove them at each other and kill everybody. So, so you got that going on. That happens so much, and that, that gets, that's a heel. I was going to try not to say any of these names, but you just can't do a review without it, right? <laughs> Verse 18, that gets, that's a heel so upset because he don't like the way it's going. He don't like how, how everybody, uh, the whole little situation of a 12 on 12 wrestling match turned out. So, so why Abner and his men are fleeing, it says that this guy began to chase him down. This is one bad dude. When you were described as being as fast as a gazelle, you is one fast dude right now this is a weird scene to me too i gotta admit when i read it because you've got dude running for his life you you got other guy i know somebody's gonna say other guy and dude dude now the guy they run in so fast that he's being described as running as a guy he's chasing him down yet this idiot in the lead the evil one abner he pauses for must be a slight second because he turns around oh man notice what he's thinking he's not afraid that it's the fast brother He's afraid of older brother. Because what's he say? That's Joab's brother. Oh, crap. Now, now think about what's going through his head. We got to be honest. This, at this point, this is Abner's only good two scenes of the whole thing. Because here's what Abner's saying. Abner's, Ab, you don't get to be king of the military, right? The, the, the commander of the military by, by being a wimp. Abner evidently is a bad dude. All right. Well, I don't like him. He's still a bad dude. So what he's saying, he looks back at the dude running as fast as a gazelle and he says, maybe you should pursue somebody else. Because if you get to me, I'm going to wipe the floor with you, young buck. Right. Yet this guy he says, no way. Now, now notice what goes on here. This, this is even awesome. He's continuing to chase. And here, here's where I think Abner does it. So he tried to get the brother to go the other way and even says, how will I face your brother? And, and, and he doesn't list uh, Ashley or whatever the other brother's name is. But, but you could almost think maybe he's thinking, if by some miracle I beat Joab, I still got that other brother, too, that's a better soldier. Right. Which we're going to get to some of their killing record. They, them some bad brothers, the two older ones. All right. So, so anyway, so he turns around and read what scripture says. 
He turns around, and he takes the butt of his spear. And punches. Asherhill in the gut. Now, I think scripture, I don't think scripture words it that way unintentionally. I think it's on purpose. I think scripture was telling us that he was trying to just knock the wind out of him. I mean, why else would you take the butt of your spear and hit a dude running at you that fast in the gut? I think he really believed. I don't want Joab to come whoop my tail. I'm going to pop his brother in the gut. He's not going to be able to breathe, so he won't be able to run as fast as a gazelle, and I'll be able to get away. But instead, maybe it's because he's running as fast as a gazelle. He he takes the butt of his spear, hits him in the gut, and he goes through him. So you could say, one, Abner must be strong. You could say, dude was running way too fast and didn't have good brakes. Whatever it is. But you can imagine the minute little brother dropped to his knees and died, Abner said, oops. And he said, oops, because he knew two older brothers were not going to be happy with what just took place. And, of course, they're not, because we get to verse 23. We, oh, no, I'm sorry, 23 is where all that just took place, uh, where, where Asherbel dies. Then we get Job and Asherbel, they want revenge. Somebody killed your little brother, you want revenge. So they gather men, they chase, and 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 they chase. And I love what's said about Joab's men. Because when Abner does finally wisen up and yell back, and says, man, how, how long y'all going to keep chasing us? We going to keep running. How long y'all going to keep chasing us? Joab comes to his senses and says, you know what? This really is kind of fruitless at this moment because we're never actually going to catch them. But he also says, somebody says, you know what? These men would have ran until tomorrow morning if I wanted them to keep running. So it's almost, almost like a threat at the same time. He goes, I'm going to call back my pit bulls, but you should know that if I ever want to let them off the leash again, they will chase you as long as I tell them to chase you. And then we got to kind of stop right there because that's the end of chapter two. And I'd be here for another hour and a half. If we jumped into chapter three. But but look at the end of this thing and look at what's really going on in the whole chapter. The very last two, a couple of verses, it says that Joab only lost 20 of his men. His brother and 19 others is what it says. Abner lost how many? 360. Wow. I, I point that out because you need to see the tides are turning. The tides are turning. They're going in favor of, of David and his followers right now, okay? And it'll be way more in-depth into the next week. But here's what also you got to see in this picture of this thing. You got to see what God's painting for us. Because the primary focus started with David at the beginning. It started with him being anointed as king over Judah. It started with, with all those years on the run finally coming to an end. And him getting to claim a little bit more of the leadership that God had finally put him in. And you got to ask yourself that if you were David, if you were David and you had finally gotten to what you could say a, a piece of the finish line, and you're looking out and your men are happy. There, there's joy on their faces for once. Your family is happy to be with you. There, there's shouts of, of greatness going over you. They've dumped oil over your head to anoint you as king at that moment, which we'll get to more later. Uh, what are you really expecting? I'm expecting victory chance. I'm expecting like finally the, 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 the hell I've been going through is really over. And, and I just point this out because we need to realize as followers, that sometimes we'll get to little victory parts in our walk with Christ like that. And we need to realize that it is not smooth sailing. OK, it's not. We need to be OK with that. We, we need to understand. I think God's word is trying to make sure and he's trying to inform us that our expectations are very rarely a reality. Because reality is 
We live in a fallen world. Reality is there's always going to be an Abner out there. There's always going to be a, a Ishbosheth out there. There's always going to be opposition out there. There's always going to be some people that want to anoint you with oil, and some people are just going to shoot you with a spitwad. Okay? And, and, and that's where we're at. And it's all, almost like we as parents. I, I don't know how everybody else did, but, but we as parents, we, we tried to tell our kids that school was going to be awesome. We didn't. I think all parents do that, if I remember right. You know, we want them to go so they can get the heck out of our house. Um, I mean, so they get education. But, but, but think about the things we tell them. Oh, I loved all my teachers when I was in school. You're going to learn so much. It's going to be so much fun. Teachers have a passion for sharing stuff with you, and you're going to get it, connect with that. You're going to make so many friends. You're going to have field trips. You're going to get to go to dances, except for Haley. You're going to get to play sports. I mean, think about all this stuff that we're doing, right? And in reality, they get to school. Kids suck. Everyone doesn't like you. Your teacher's actually really mean. You got the one teacher that didn't have a passion for, for teaching children. <laughs> Tess, get really hard. You called yourself out on it. Tess can be really hard. Bullies can bully. You get left out on the kickball field. You, you fall behind on your work. You get called names. But nobody ever told you about that for school, did they? Right? Nobody ever told you, like, that's what was coming. Nobody, nobody sat down with the kid going into first grade and said, all right, now bullies are going to bully you. They're going to call you names, but you're going to get an education. No. Why? Because we're horrible. We are. We set them up for failure. All honesty, do we not? Think about it. It's no different than when people tell you, oh, man, when you start making money, things are going to be great. No, because the government takes a third of it. And then the house payment takes some more of it. And then your wife wants to buy this and there goes the rest of it. And then you got kids and they take the rest of it. And here you are driving a 15 year old truck, right? I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about some of you guys. Here's my thing, man. We need to understand by reading scripture what God's doing. God is completely honest with us all the time. It's not always going to be great. Even when you get to finish lines. Now that doesn't mean you stop. That doesn't mean you don't pursue it anymore, because what that means is you have Jesus for those moments. That means when the moments are hard, Christ is there with you. His word is there. His law is there to, to tote you through it. It's like Hebrews said in chapter 12. Therefore, let us not be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. While, while, while the world is shaking around us, we can't be. Peter, after his fall in first Peter, chapter five, verse 10, after his fall, he writes to his readers. And he tells them your ultimate expectation. And here's the expectation that after you have suffered a little while. Hold on, Peter. I thought you were going to give us good news. Yeah, but you're going to have to suffer to get the good news. After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. That, that's what the believers are trying to make sure we get. And if we really look at this word right here and we're, we're completely honest. About what's taking place at the end, you got to ask yourself, and this is one thing I do. So if you, if you study Bible, if you study scripture, do this. Ask yourself, what did the first readers of this section, what would they have got out of this? The very first people. Now we wrote, we know that first and second Samuel, which was one book, we said that already. But, but we said, you know, that was written probably right after Israel's established. King David's had, well, King Saul had his stuff. King David has his. King uh, Solomon has his. And, and there's, there's this big, problem that takes place and the kingdom's divided again. And they would know about that, but those would have been probably the first people reading this book, I believe. And I wonder why they may know about the, the major division that's taking place, 
and why it's happening. I wonder if some of them would have read this section and they would have had the thought I had. And the thought I had was this. Israel's got cracks in this foundation at the very beginning. And the cracks are men pursuing selfish gain. Because while I like Joab and I love that he supports David and I think he's great. In all honesty, he's got personal gain in his mind, too. And we're going to really get to it in chapter three when he chases for revenge and kills out of revenge and not out of war during the time of peace. So he's just as bad as Abner in reality. And I wonder if the cracks then in the foundation is what causes the great divide that happens later. And then that makes me wonder, well, hold on. If that was for the people who first read it, how does it apply to us today? I wonder sometimes if we don't let some cracks in on our own stuff. You know, a husband and wife and neither one of them are willing to surrender to the other because we're all about selfish gain. So we just fight our way through worrying about what's best for us. Or we come into church and we want it our way rather than the Lord's way. So we fight. Right. Have we let a lot of cracks come into our walks, into our homes, into our churches, into our personal lives that are going to later cause great chasms of division? And I think we have. And I think when I read this chapter and I get into chapter three and see how how bad the civil war really does get. I, I think we need to realize that the best thing we can do is mend cracks now before something's built on top of them. I think the greatest thing we can do is realize that there is a problem because of selfish gain. And we need to just get rid of that and start pursuing his kingdom, not my kingdom. It's not David's kingdom. It's not Abner's kingdom. It's not Joab's kingdom. It's not Ishabeth's kingdom. We're talking about God's kingdom. Yahweh's kingdom, his household, his followers and his people. And we need to realize, just like David did at the very beginning of verse one, I know what your plan is, but I want to make sure you're leading every step of the way, Lord. Every step of the way. I want you to be not only my savior, I want you to be my leader. I want to surrender and I want to serve you for every step. So there's not a crack in the foundation that causes turmoil later. You guys pray with me. Father God, we love you so much. God, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for this great story. God, we love the, the action that's taking place. But Lord, I, I pray that we open our eyes and realize it didn't have to be that bad. When I read it, Lord God, I think that David was delayed for being king. Because of two men wanting to pursue their own way rather than your way. God, I don't want to delay your plans any further. So, God, I pray right now that if there's some cracks in the foundation. Lord, God, you open our eyes to see them. God, you roll up our sleeves so that we can get dirty and get them fixed. Because, God, we don't need any more division and great chasms of, of, of failure happening later on in life. God, help us to set up a rock solid foundation. One built on your kingdom and its way rather than the ways of man in this world. Lord, we love you. We thank you in your great name. We pray. Amen.